0: In case you missed it, this week, Bleacher Report pretty much destroyed BR magazine, the long-form sports writing section on the site. It got rid of writers, it got rid of editors, it got rid of some of the absolute best journalists in the business. There was a time, not all that long ago, when publications did whatever it took, spent whatever they needed to spend to get the best story. If you needed a week, you had a week. If you needed a month, you had a month. And the pieces were fantastic. they were detailed, they were in depth, they were moving. today, Bleacher Report screamed out loud, we don't give a shit about quality. From now on, it'll be quick hits, edgy designs, hashtags, and mindless pop culture references. And as a guy who used to write for BR Mag, who wrote 8,000 word pieces and loved every minute of it, I shed a tear for yet another dead chunk of sports journalism. My name is Jeff Perelman. I'm the New York Times best-selling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. This is Chinese the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every to week. Today's episode to is the great Danielle and selling, the author, right writer, the former editor and of the Five time. Magazine, really, I'm not woman who wrote to some say, brilliant shit you. you. you this is episode number 170, Now it's about the the swarm together like there's triumph in the well, Danielle, first I want to say I'm a, uh, I'm a long time admirer of your career. It's funny I was thinking I used to write for Slam magazine, and my roommate back in the early late '90s actually was the editor of Slam, and that's when Double XL was in the same building, Harris Publications, and it just it was like the height of sort of magazine upstarts, and vibe was this huge thing, and then Double XL was trying to knock it off and slam was trying to sort of get into that little crevice of hip hop and sports. And it feels really long ago to me that like I was writing for sports illustrated and you were the editor of vibe and it was this golden day of magazines. And sometimes I feel like the world's biggest dinosaur. And I wonder if you feel the same or if you're just like, Oh, this is great. I love the way media and journalism is going.
1: Wow. Um, yes, that does uh, seem like forever ago, but in many ways, I feel like that era is more relevant now than it has been in a long time. I think I don't really miss the era. What I miss is a lot of money being poured into reporting uh, culture, specifically black culture and POC culture. I miss money being poured into design budgets for you know, media organizations that serve black and POC uh, readers and listeners, I miss a lot of money being poured into photography budgets, uh, serving those readerships also. So that's what I miss more than anything. Vibe did exactly what it was supposed to do and more when it was most thriving. And I would say the same for SLAM and I would say the same for XXL. And um, yeah, I miss, you know, of course, those are fun times. I was young. I was in the streets. I was writing and editing. I was partying. I was, you know, I was being the boss. It was amazing, but I more miss the budgets um, either pouring into somewhere where I'm working or to where um, others are working.
0: So I I always tell young journalists this and they find, they they look at me like I have, you know, seven aliens growing out of my head, but I was at sports illustrated from 96 to Oh three. And we could fly anywhere. We could fly anywhere. And 1996, just to celebrate the staff, they sent the entire staff to the Olympics for a weekend. It was this glorious sort of era financially. I feel like Vibe covered hip-hop culture so well and hip-hop so well. I'm, I'm looking at the covers as, as we speak. You know, Tupac and New Edition and Kirk Franklin and just these, these, these awesome in-depth features. Are there still places that can do that? Or do you feel like we've just sort of dropped the ball?
1: I don't look to places. I look to individuals at this point. Um, I look to, I mean, there's scores and scores of brilliant writers and photographers and designers who are doing things on their own for quote unquote places. Um, But do we have those kinds of magazines or websites or media organizations that are doing the best they can with Budgets smaller than they should be having? Yes, I mean, there are plenty of places, but it's about the budgets. Uh, it's about the budgets to pay editors and fact checkers and reporters and senior editors and um, I don't I'm not a fan of Bloat at all with regard to editorial staffs, but what I am a fan of is an actual staff so that people aren't working themselves to death trying to create like one story a month.
0: Where, do, where are the places you turn to nowadays?
1: Man, I go everywhere. I mean, I publish a newsletter pretty much every week called The Hard List, where I curate, you know, culture buying about um, Black people and pe- people of culture. So, I mean, where do I go? Again, I don't go to places. I go to people. I go to Blavity. I go to Shadow and Act. I go to DJ Booth. I still go to Vibe, XXL, BET. I go to certain people at the New York Times, at the New Yorker. I go to, oh man, I go to Bleacher Report. I still go to ESPN's The Undefeated, where I used to work.
0: I, was, um, I always do this with this podcast. I find random things that people wrote that they may not even remember writing. And um, I found something by you from uh, August 27th, 1992, LA Weekly. You did a piece about DJ Quick. And, um, <laughs> No charge for that. That's free. Uh, I mean, here's the thing, though. I, say it right now, I remember it vividly. Wait, why? What do you remember? Before I read from this, what do you remember? Well, one,
1: it was another lifetime. I was living in Oakland. Uh, this was before I was even had met Elliot in my life. I was freelancing. I was so thrilled to get an assignment from LA Weekly. Um, got down there on my own uh, money. I probably was making 20 cents a word. (laughs) But what I really remember most was hanging around with Quick. And it was, man, it was such a great, it was such a great day running around with him, meeting his friends. I was actually at his house in his backyard. I think I took a ride with him to the airport to pick up a friend. And I always remember, I don't even know if this is in the piece, but I always remember I think we were in his backyard and Quick was just so casual. He was like, do you want to make a run with me to the airport? I got to pick up my boy or whatever. And I was like, sure. And his friends were like, you're going to go with him to the airport? And he looked at his friends and was like, man, we got the bulletproof glass, like windows. Like, we're fine. (laughs) And I just remember, I don't think
0: I blinked. But those were different times. Your uh, your lead is so good. You wrote, um, DJ Quick does not stop talking for anything. He interrupts people. He is the conversation. On 76th and Crenshaw, he is the gaunt hot sun and us, all planets around him. You can't be an artist and a manager too, he says, leaning against the cutlass, then standing, then walking, then leaning again. That's a problem with some of these artists, trying to be a businessman and an artist. Can't do it. Me, I just want to make some of that old 808 jazzy shit, that would be parliament kind of shit, the kind of music that I miss. I wanted to make some shit like the people who don't get their props. And he just goes on and on. And it's, it's so good. Because I'm sh- it's really funny. I read it and I thought, I don't think I'd enjoy hanging out with DJ Quick because he just sounds like he talks and talks for hours and hours. And I bet he read that article and loved it. And in a way, that's it's- a sign of a really good piece where like you you let someone know who someone is. And at the same time, the guy reading it, it's like, that guy, she nailed it. She just nailed it. I, just, <laughs> I thought it was really good.
1: I haven't read that or let alone heard that in a trillion years. But it's funny, the relationships you have and you don't have Uh, With some people as as a writer and as an editor, you always have to, especially when you get to be an editor, you have to make decisions about things that make people happy, but also things that make artists unhappy. You know, they didn't get a cover or a record review back then when record reviews really mattered, you know, maybe the record review didn't go their way. But over the years, there are some artists that you manage to, through ups and downs, to maintain a good relationship with and Quick is one of those people for me and I run into him periodically and he always says something to to the effect to me is that that I was the one of the first people that really one saw him and two frankly put him in a white magazine
0: so he was at that point not you would say the sort of general audience, a general music listening audience, not that familiar with DJ Quick in 1990?
1: No, not then. No, not at all. But Born and Raised in Compton also, I was, man, I was so enthusiastic. Born and Raised in Compton was, is still one of my favorite um, songs of all time. And I think there's still kind of a, maybe there isn't still, but at least back then there was kind of a division between, you know, you either really liked uh, Dr. Dre and N.W.A. or you really kind of liked uh, DJ Quick and the guys he was running around with. And uh, I mean, my other claim to fame is that I reviewed The Chronic for LA Weekly and, and, and did not like the record. So I should tell you whatever you need to know about me.
0: I just want to say what's funny is um, I mentioned Russ Banks and he was the editor of Slam Magazine when I roomed with him. And when we were in college, he, he gave uh, Nirvana's Nevermind, I think an F or a D and um, never heard the end of it. And I wonder, do you do you stand by your take? Do you still listen to The Chronic and think, eh, not that great?
1: I mean, that's a really good question that no one ever asked me. And yes, I absolutely stand by it. <laughs> I, I mean, I absolutely have, no, you know, I have great respect for, for Dr. Dre. It's just in the moment when I heard it, I was not moved as much as many, many other people over the course of history. So do I sometimes go back and say, well, maybe it wasn't exactly as I thought it was? kind of. But really, most reviews that I've written, I stand by them not because I so completely agree with them, you know, 20, 25 years later, but more because I sort of remember myself from that era with some kind of respect. I took it very seriously reviewing records. I still do. But I took it very seriously back then. I used to really have a process. I still do. And I didn't just like listen to things once and like rattle off something I took it seriously whether it was a 100 300 or 800 word review
0: wait so how I'm fascinated by this I've done a lot of music reviews and I think I'm terrible at it um I was a music writer for a while at the National Tennessean and I think I was probably the worst music writer in the country because I didn't really get the intricacies of music when you're reviewing an album how many times are you listening to it and what are you actually looking for or listening for
1: well I mean obviously I don't review records as much as I used to But I do still write about music. Um, So some of it has changed. But when I used to strictly just take an album as a work of art, I had some sort of terms and conditions for myself. I would listen to it a bunch of times on headphones without taking any notes. Then I would just have to have it playing like in the house or in the car, just sort of as a part of my life where I'm kind of only half paying attention to it. Then I had to sit down and listen to it with headphones and take notes on every single song But I think I would do it back then on, on my computer, but sometimes I would do it by hand. So I would have all these notes and let's say it's a 300 word review, which is what was kind of my bread and butter back then. And then I would just look for patterns in my notes, like, Did I repeat the word like fiery a lot or did I repeat the word lame a lot or did I repeat the word whatever a lot or did it remind me of a certain era a lot and I kept bringing that up. So then you begin to find your spine and you begin to find your theme and then I would just remember certain things that I'd been taught like I literally had been taught to answer the question of does this album have artistic merit or not? And I would force myself in one way or another to answer that question. And that was pretty much what I did.
0: So artistic merit is very different than, did I enjoy the album? Yes,
1: it absolutely is. Sometimes if I was, it would depend on who you're writing for, but I used to very much try to separate my enthusiasms from what I thought was artistic merit. Um, both in live performance review and recorded music review, I really tried to take into consideration the audience that this artist was attempting to serve. Now, sometimes it was great because I was a part of that audience, but not all the time. I mean, I've reviewed Neil Diamond at Madison Square Garden. I don't know if I'm typically Neil Diamond's uh, audience. So I tried to take into consideration the people around me and how they were taking in the performance. So it just would depend.
0: My first ever concert review was A Tribe Called Quest and Black Sheep in Newark, Delaware in 1991.
1: And First of all, that sounds like a hell of a show, man.
0: Great show. But, and, and it made me a lifelong <laughs> fan of both acts. But I knew nothing mm-hmm. at the time. I was, a, I was a 21-year-old college kid. My review butchered, confused Q-Tip and Fife Dog repeatedly. I was too stubborn and embarrassed to ask anyone standing around me what this song is or blah, 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 like anything. I was as stubborn, and, and the review was an embarrassment. I remember getting letters saying, how can you send someone who knows nothing about this artist to review this artist, and, which I mm-hmm. thought, in hindsight, is a very fair question. So if, you, if you're going to review Neil Diamond, and you're not a Neil Diamond fan, do you need to come armed with good knowledge or research yeah. of Neil Diamond?
1: Yes, of course. How are you showing any respect for Neil Diamond, his fans, or his work, or anything like that if you don't? I mean, the thing about being as big a pop star as Neil Diamond was at that time is you didn't really have to do that much research. If you grew up in Los Angeles in the 1970s and 80s like I did, you couldn't walk down the street or get in the car without hearing Neil Diamond on the radio, even if your favorite artist was like Stevie Wonder. Right. It just was what it was. So did I have to do some research before going to – To see Neil Diamond, of course, but come on, man. It's not like I don't know Neil Diamond records. Everybody knows Neil Diamond records, or if you're my age, I should say. You know one or two or three, Yeah. you probably know more than that. And I will say this. It was a weird night, but it was a great (laughs)
0: night. Wait, why was it a weird night?
1: Because I was like the only black person in Madison Square Garden. I mean, that was the first thing. I mean, I'm used to going to Knicks games and stuff, so I was like, oh, so there's some whole other population that comes to Madison Square Garden that I don't know about, number one. And then I'm sitting on what used to be called Press Row, where all the reviewers would sit. So people were looking at me like, who is this girl? And, you know, I knew the records. I was not one to go to live shows and not have a good time if I was having a good time. And I was also just like, I think as a culture writer, you have to have just some natural curiosity about maybe some shit that you don't know about. Right. Like maybe I don't know every Neil Diamond song, but listen, all these people around me are digging it so much. I'm one that can get caught up in the enthusiasm of like other people's enjoyment. And Neil looks like he's giving it to him, man. Like he's not up there fooling around. He was showing off and showing out. So I had a great night. I gave him a good review.
0: I mean, the worst thing you can do, right, is go into an environment with the attitude, this is stupid, this is dumb, I don't um, get this. Like that, you're just, you're just poisoning the whole thing.
1: It's like, why are you going? Like, I don't understand. Why are you going? Why are you bringing down the room, man? That's my thing. Right. <laughs> why are you bringing down the room?
0: You've written a lot about Whitney Houston over the years, and I ended up going down the uh, Danielle Smith, Whitney Houston rabbit hole a little bit. And um, your 1995 vibe cover story on Whitney Houston, is so ridiculously good. I mean, she just opened up to you in a way that very few celebrities have ever opened up to me. You know, every now and then you get an athlete who does, but it's very hard. How do you get someone like that to just feel comfortable enough with you to spew?
1: I mean, that's a good question. I mean, one is just experience. Or second to that is dumb luck. You know, sometimes you just catch a person, they feel like talking. But then sometimes there's other things at play. I was going through a divorce at that time. And Whitney was going through a very rough patch in her marriage. Some would say her whole marriage was a rough patch. And I let that be known. So that might have helped in some ways. I also think that Whitney wasn't terribly used to being interviewed by another Black woman. I also think I went in that night with just some, I mean, it's funny you ask, because obviously I'm writing a book, A History of Black Women in Pop Music, and there's um, there's chapters devoted to Whitney Houston and my relationship with her, and such as it was, I don't want to act like it was, we were cousins or sisters or anything like that, but we had a long relationship uh, media-wise. She's a very savvy person. And sometimes, when my, I'm not going to say too much, but I will say that sometimes as a writer, you have to be wary of when a person is using you also, uh, when a person is telling you things that they want you to know because this is the time when they want people to know them. So she's a brilliant lady. I hate to use the past tense with her. Uh, she's a brilliant lady, and uh, let's just put it this way. We were very wise to each other throughout our relationship, and that night was the beginning of it. She also just liked that I knew things about her. She liked that I had enthusiasms about her work and her songs, and that I didn't ask her just the expected questions, as she put it. So it
0: was, uh, it was really a great, a great, great night that night was. You do something amazing in this story. I just think this is different level as far as writing a profile. You wrote, um, there's no denying that Houston's personal life was at a crossroads around the time she recorded one of the biggest selling songs in music history, which was I Will Always Love You. Whatever Houston's pre-matrimonial days were like, something happened when she got to know Bobby Brown. She reconsidered her other relationships and fell in love with, married, and had a child with a man many thought and continue to think was absolutely wrong for her. And this is what I love. You wrote, even if you're an utter cynic and think the marriage was false and, and the baby a prop, Whitney was making decisions, taking risks, maybe feeling the power of her money in her career. She was being grown, she had something to sing about. I just always think one of the toughest things to do as a journalist is to learn how to become a narrator of a story and guide it without the obvious I, I, me, me, I think, I think. And you're just really, really, really good at guiding a story. Yeah, I don't know if that's deliberate if you're thinking about it as you're doing it or if it's just something you've learned over time, I mean, it's
1: something that I've learned over time. I mean, there's just, I have, not, they're not tricks, I guess. It's just how I write. It's not easy to write at all for me. It's not fun. I don't find a lot of joy in it. I'm that person who does not love to write, but loves having written, as the saying goes. I do not look forward to sitting down and pulling together a profile. None of it is fun to me, but it's, it's still everything to me. You know what I mean? It's so everything to me. So one of the, the things that I do, and I think I was, I was taught, again, I, just, I, I, I have the benefit of great editors, great writing teachers over the course of my life, um, whether I was in the third grade or whether I was in my you know, sophomore year in college. If you don't want to use I, just still write it with that pronoun and then just go back and take it out. Take out all of the I think's and the eyes, because really what I was told and what I believe is you never actually have to say, I think when you're writing a personal essay, because it's obvious that you think it because you're the person that's writing it. Yeah. And so I will literally sometimes put the eyes in and take them out. As I've gotten older, people have asked me to use I and to feel comfortable more comfortable inserting it or even leaning on it but in my my younger days i don't even think i had that confidence to feel like i wanted to use it all the time i had a general interest column in the san francisco bay guardian when i was in my early 20s where i think i used i a lot and then i got away from it as i got i don't i don't know what the peaks and valleys are in one's confidence like i haven't you know that map is complex but um I is a weird thing to be working with in in text. And I feel like sometimes it just comes off as stronger when you just say it like in the declarative without
0: I. I advise a student newspaper out here in Southern California. And I would say the number one thing I remind students is get rid of the I, get rid of the I. Every editorial piece, every column, get rid of the I, get rid of the I. We don't get, you don't need it. It's obviously, as you just said, it's a, it's your opinion. So you don't actually need yeah. to say, this is my opinion. We get it. Your byline's
1: there. Yes. <laughs> your byline's there. Like, it's right there. Obviously, you think it. Um, it's, it's really nice to hear those words back, though. It's like, it, it's, I don't go back and read my old stuff that often. Even though I've had to a bit for the book. Wow, that was 1995. I feel like I was on my shit in a good way. And I should also say I had great editors at Bob, even when I was music editor myself, or even when I was at, at editor in chief, people that challenged me, that checked me, and encouraged me. And I also think that a lot of that is missing. If I want you say, what do I miss about oh, yeah. that era? That's what I miss.
0: Around that same time again, when I was at SI, you would write a story and it would get edited at least six different keyboard edit your story. Hell yes. And it was the height of misery as a writer. It was, it was, It was. was. did you enjoy getting edited?
1: No, I still don't. I still don't. I like editing because you get to be like the boss or whatever, (laughs) but but, um, no, I don't like it. But when I'm not edited, I'm mad. I just feel like I know I missed something or there's a mistake or I'm just wandering here and no one's checking me and saying you've already, or my classic thing in my rough drafts is I say that, Same thing in like four different paragraphs. I read so much great stuff, man, from so many amazing and talented young writers, writers in their 20s and 30s. Man, I I say to myself, and this is maybe my ego, I say, I wish I could work with them on just one or two pieces. Even if they don't like my feedback, at least they will have had it. Or if it's not me, let it be some of my contemporaries or people that came up and were taught themselves just how to make things more trim and more forceful and more declarative and just how to weave in reporting into personal essays. Like these things matter more now than they ever did.
0: Yeah, we speak the same language 100% on this. I, um, I look back at my young writing at the Tennessean and I just thought I could write, I thought I was like the world's greatest writer and I was the opposite and I thought I could write <laughs> around anything and you don't need facts and it's just, I'm gonna dazzle you with my five paragraphs of brilliance. And then an editor comes along and goes slash, 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 slash. And you realize in hindsight, the person was right the whole time.
1: Yeah, I, I treasure, I treasure so much of what people told me. Man, I treasured so much. I use m dashes over semicolons because I had an editor when I was in my early 20s who was like, the semicolon is the worst piece of punctuation In the English language, never use it. You pick a period or you pick a comma or you use a M dash, but the semicolon, never use it. And that is like the only reason why I never use it. I never use it. And I take it out of other people's copy when I'm editing for whatever reason it works for me. And I do think it makes my writing less hedgy. Like I hate hedging, like pick a period or pick a comma. And that applies not just to the semicolon, but just like to writing in general. Like make a decision, either stop or pause, but you can't do both.
0: Who was the teacher who told you that, do you remember?
1: Wasn't even a teacher. It was Lee Hildebrand of the East Bay Express, a great alternative news weekly that's struggling to stay alive in the great city of Oakland, California.
0: I want to say one more thing about this. Well, two more things about the 95 Whitney. I put this story in any great profile compilation ever and you wrote something this is a paragraph i just freaking love you wrote and she sang sang in high towers. you wrote aside from the kenny g like alto sax solo in the bridge which i don't hate as much as you do but i agree with you i will always love you as perfection she sings the word bittersweet bittersweetly and there's a plaintiveness about her delivery her phrasings evidence of a tense elegant restraint like she could scream but chooses not to Parton's song is full of the kind of noble sentiments that delivered with Houston's usual bombast, as in her nineteen eighty six version of George Benton's Greatest Love of All, would have become just another big melodramatic Whitney ballad. Instead, the girl sings for the first time like she knows what love is. Not just sex, not just comfort, not just longing, not some urgent combination of the three, but love. I mean that's as fucking good a paragraph as I've ever read on this I
1: mean, you're making me feel pretty damn good about my 1995 self. I'm hoping 2020 stands up to it. Damn, that does sound like I was writing about Whitney. I I really feel like, too, like, when I sit down, I want to actually, and I don't know who told me this, but it was a help to actually paint a picture of what something sounds like is important as a music critic. But it's hard, right? Oh, it's hard. But you have to actually listen to the record, and you have to think. (laughs) Like... You literally have to sit there and listen to the record and you have to think and you have to actually describe it and you have to be precise. You just can't say it's really a smooth jam. Like we just can't do that. (laughs) We can't call it a smooth jam. We can't, we can't do that. We have to say what it really sounds like to you. And you don't really have to say I Because the more specific you are with regard to how it sounds to you, the listener, the writer, the more the other person's going to hear it and be able to make their own decisions. It's just trying to give them a door into the sound or the artist. You know what I mean? Man, people talk about I Will Always Love You is not a good record or it's overrated or they played it too much or blah, blah, blah. That's bullshit. It's one of the best records ever recorded.
0: You know what I love about this paragraph too? And I always think this stuff is important, people don't get it. I remember when I was a music writer, again, a really bad, unqualified music writer. And Tommy Shaw of Sticks and Jack Blades of Night Ranger got together and they released an album you know, under, the, under the group name Shaw Blades. And I really liked it. And I wrote a review of it. And I mangled everything about the history of the songs, which were covers, the backgrounds, and if you say this is a great album, but you don't know anything about the artist, you're useless. And even, it's so little, but you writing about the, that George Benson originally did Greatest Love of All. Mm-hmm. I honestly believe 80% of people who know Greatest Love of All have no idea that George Benson did the song first. Nah, man. I think most people didn't, didn't listen fully to Dolly Parton's version and realize it's a pretty freaking good song. You know, like Dolly's version a of-
1: is a good version.
0: Yeah, very, very. I just think you put a lot of knowledge in there that you wouldn't even, maybe if you're casual reading it, casually reading it, you wouldn't even see the work that goes into it. But the work of listening to the George Benson version, the work of listening to the Dolly Parton version, the work of knowing Whitney Houston's background, the Kenny G reference, a million different little things that kind of, in a way, speak to years of musical knowledge and listening to music and kind of analyzing music in one paragraph. I
1: mean, thank you, and true, and before I say anything about that, I want to say shout out to Sticks just on the strength of what was it? Come sell Away. Like that was really my um, jam back in uh, whatever year that was. But I was also told, and I'll give this one to Anthony De Curtis, the former music editor of Rolling Stone. You have to put things in context. Like, how are you telling anybody anything about anything if you don't know about the thing? Like, I wasn't that old in 95. Like, I started writing professionally in 89. So that was like, I was six years into the game. So maybe I knew, I mean, I know we had the uh, Greatest Love of All original by George Benson at the house on vinyl. It was just like a record that was at the house. So I obviously was going to know that. I think I had to do research about the, the Dolly Parton thing. Yes. And this was kind of in the pre-internet era, but it's like, I don't know. You have to show respect to the artist that you're writing about and to the audience that you're trying to serve. I don't understand how I wouldn't put those things in. I also, Vibe people forget that Vibe came from the Time, Inc. system. Vibe magazine started out as a Time, Inc. publication. My editorial director when I was editor-in-chief was Gil Rogan, who I know you know because you're a Sports Illustrated guy. Gil Rogan, who was a longtime editor of Sports Illustrated and who actually launched the fucking swimsuit issue. Uh, back in those days. So the thing that we, we have the old fashioned ways of reporting, And I do this in my writing now is if you mention a song or an album, you have to put the year it came out in front of it. You just do. I don't write any other way, but the thing that that year does is give context in the, in four characters, the 1997 cover. So then, you know, 1997 tells you a lot. 2000 tells you a lot. So I don't know. I just believe that kind of stuff has to be in there or else how is the writing going to be rich? I want it to be rich. I want it to be kind of colorful and vivid. I want you to. I haven't talked about my writing this much in a long time. I just want it to be rich. Black music has gone through decades of not being considered. Like just not even being like broken down and lifted up and, like, critiqued and celebrated. It's just been stolen from and just been, like, not included and in all. The, it's just been a mess. And I felt a commitment from the jump to take care of it and write about it respectfully, not to like everything. I told you I didn't even like the chronic. Not to like everything, but to write about it with respect and richness. It was important to me from... Man, listen, from the beginning. It's why I got into the game to begin with. Before we continue with Two-Riders Slinging
0: Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, who just finished watching the first day of the Republican National Convention. Can I make a
1: suggestion to 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise? Sure. White Herschel Walker jerseys.
0: I mean, his uniform was really more red than white.
1: No, white. All white and wrinkly. For all the people on TV tonight, all white, 100% white. Really, 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 really white.
0: Uh, I'll go to 503-sports.com and I guess I'll see what I can do.
1: All white and wrinkly.
0: Got it. I, I don't know why this just entered my head. I, I grew up in a really small, very conservative little town in upstate New York. And I fell in love my senior year in high school with, uh, <laughs> with Big Daddy Kane. And it's a big daddy thing. And,
1: and why shouldn't you? Of this course.
0: <laughs> of course. And um, I'm like the cliche. I'm, I'm in a way, I'm the cliche. I was like, my best friend was one of the three African American kids in my school. And he listened to a lot of Run DMC. And he turned me on to hip hop. And I started loving hip hop. And I remember we had the senior dance or junior dance. And I insist, I, I begged the DJ to play I Get the Job Done by Big Daddy Kane. I'm like, people are going to love this. This is the best thing ever. Kids are going to love this. And he's like, all right, fine. And he puts it on and the dance floor just emptied, like emptied. And I was like, wait, what just happened? And I feel like all these years later, 30 years later, all these kids are listening to hip hop and hip hop is the primary music for that generation. Yes. Uh, Do you feel like that is a, this may be a dumb way of phrasing it, a win for quote unquote black music, black artists, mainstream acceptance. I
1: view it as we work for that. That's how I view it. At the end of the day, I view it as, We worked for that man. I'm guilty of practicing a lot of advocacy journalism in my early career, especially, and maybe even through now. Uh, I came up at a time when rap was not even getting credit for how much it was being played on the radio and how much it was actually selling in record stores. And then with SoundScan, of course, we realized that the real uh, genres that were moving in the United States of America were hip hop and country most specifically at that time, N.W.A. and Garth Brooks, when nobody thought Garth was as big as he was and nobody thought N.W.A. was as big as they were. It's a kind of, I don't know if I'm going to find the right word, it's kind of a, a retribution. It's kind of a, it's kind of a thing where finally there was some ownership involved by Black people in Black music, beyond Barry Gordy and Motown, who set the, The tone and the stage, and gave hip hop its blueprint. When I started out, what we were fighting against was mainstream media saying that hip hop was a fad, that it was violent, that it didn't matter. And I'm never saying that it's not without its problems, that it doesn't have its misogyny, and it doesn't have its ridiculousness. But really, it's one of the greatest art forms to ever come out of the United States of America. It is globally right now, the most important and most played music, most streamed music. It's everything now. So when you ask me what it means, or is it a win for Black people? I don't know if I count stuff up, like whether things are a win or not, but I know I feel fucking good about it. I feel like so many people put so much work in to making this thing against all odds. Shout out to Phil Collins. It's here. <laughs> it's flourishing, and it's, and, 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 and it's it is amazing. And people say, Danielle, how was it coming up in the 90s when all this was happening? Like, wow, you were really like editor-in-chief in the 90s, the vibe the hip-hop was everything and it was the golden eras and blah, 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 blah. And it took me so long to get comfortable with that. But now I say, you know what? It was amazing. It was terrible. We lost Biggie and Tupac and uh, gained the world.
0: Take a look at you now to cite Phil Collins. There it goes. I, I've struggled with this with sports, and I wonder if you have this with music. I was a baseball writer during sort of whatever, the Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa era of baseball. And those are my contemporaries. And I felt a sort of kinship with them and an understanding of them because we came up during the same time period. If you are writing about a 22-year-old singer or hip-hop artist now, and you're listening to their music, mm-hmm. can you relate to it the same way you did, you know, whatever, when, when it was age contemporaries releasing music?
1: I mean, the short answer is no. But the better answer is, I still like it, though. Like, right. there's just nothing, like, I love to know what is happening in hip-hop and Black music at all times. Like, I love to listen to it and find something in it that speaks to me. A great example, that LA gets tired of me playing um, Booed Up from LMA, for example. Believe that's her name? It's fucking amazing. It's a true love song. It's a true pop hit. It's just amazing. I love probably too much Drake. Too much. Too much. Too much Drake. I don't know. Like, I made a promise to myself when people used to hate rap. Not just dislike it. Hate it. Right. And some of them were my friends. And they would sound so dumb to me just acting like what we had was better the Beatles were better. The beach boys were better. Like what? The Eagles were better. Shout out to the Eagles. One of my favorite groups, you know, Fleetwood Mac was better whatever. Uh, I made a promise to myself that I was never going to hate on the music from the younger generation. If I would be so lucky to get old, I was not going to hate. It brings me so much joy. Uh, I've probably been to more than, I don't know, 1,000, maybe even 2,000 live shows in my career.
0: What's the best show you've ever been to? The one that sparked the most joy in you?
1: Oh, man, that's a ridiculous question. No, it is not. I mean, come on. I've, I've been to too many shows. Like, narrow it down to, to rock, rap, woman singer, like what?
0: Yeah, best woman singer.
1: I'm going to have to go Mary J. Blige live in Madison Square Garden on tour with Jay-Z. It's one of the best shows ever. And she went on for a long time. I feel like Jay-Z was in the wings like, yo, it's time for me to come back on. It was a great night.
0: Well, Danielle, I'm a a huge admirer of your work. Truly, sincerely, a huge admirer of your work, as you can tell.
1: Thank
0: you. And your career. Thank you. And I want to end with this. We have a debate in our house all the time, and I feel like you are the person to answer this. This is between my wife and I. (laughs) Hall and Oates or Elton John? Who's better?
1: I mean, clearly Hall and Oates. Yes! Thank you. I
0: mean,
1: I don't even think that, I mean, and I like, and I like Elton John, man. He's, he's a great one, but come on, man. Hall oats. for Sarah Smile alone. That's what, what I'm talking it. about here. What's the discussion? <laughs> I don't even understand what we're talking about.
0: Well, Danielle, I uh, seriously, I can't thank you enough for doing this. You're, this is awesome and you're great and your career is terrific and, and really inspired. So uh, thank you for doing this with me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk about writing and music, and please think of me again.
0: I want to thank today's guest, Danielle Smith, for joining me on Two Writers and Yang. You can follow Danielle on Twitter at Danimo, and read her work at c o. One can listen to Two Writers and Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. My new book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty, drops September 22nd, and it's available now for advance purchase. Music is by the Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, Remember, keep writing.